Hi, and welcome to the First Year Experience Podcast. My name is Dr. Jose Saliva. I'm a faculty member here at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. And joining me today, I have... Tomas de la Cruz. I'm also a faculty member here in Rio Grande. And... Sandra Saliva. I am the Associate Program Coordinator here at Rio Grande. And this is the first episode of the First Year Experience Podcast. This podcast was created to generate conversation about issues big and small that uh, can re our students can relate to. Um, we hope to share student stories, faculty stories, staff stories, um, but really get at a, a number of topics. And with that, today's topic is the hero's journey. Now, before I, we hear from our guests, um, just a little background. So I was flying over the summer and listening to a podcast, and they were talking about the hero's journey, and I was... I'm not exactly familiar with The Hero's Journey, at least wasn't until I heard the podcast. And I was fascinated because as I was listening to it, I work with first-year students and immediately found some connections between The Hero's Journey and the stages that I saw, that I think and I see students going through. <laughs> For those of you unfamiliar with The Hero's Journey, Joseph Campbell sort of developed this trope of The Hero's Journey occurs in three stages, the first being departure, the second being uh, initiation, and the third being the return. For a lot of our students, the majority of our students are local students. They are commuters, the majority of them living at home. And so I think maybe we can argue, we can debate, right? Do our students really go through this, this period of departure? Or maybe what does departure look like for local college students? So, I mean, we can view it in two ways, right? Like the literal departure of, of me leaving this space and going into a new space, right? Um, and then this idea of, as an identity, departing from one identity to another identity, right? And, and what that means. And in both cases, there's, there's a certain amount of conflict, right? And, and as all stories need to have, right? Um, so uh, our students go through both physical departures and through identity departures, right? So in both, they have conflict when they leave. What do you think we can, we can learn as, as maybe faculty members, um, if we look at our students and see them going through this, this sense of departure, what do you think our students can learn? I don't necessarily, necessarily think our students see themselves as going through this period of departure. I mean, for a lot of them, they're still incredibly connected to home, right? And, and you said there's that, the literal departure, there is the um, metaphorical departure, right? But um, how, one, how do you think our students view it? Maybe... And all of you, you know, all of us went to college. How did you all view it? How did you all experience departure? I had um, the literal and the metaphorical. I went to school in Bowling Green State University in Ohio. So I went from Brownsville, Texas to Bowling Green, Ohio. So that was a huge departure. But I think even now I see a lot of the metaphorical departure. So when you talk about academics and studies, I am not the scholar at home. At home, I am the youngest of three my brothers will never consider me an expert in anything because I'm their baby sister. So when I go home, I encompass and embody the role of the baby sister. And, um, you know, I was even telling my brother about this podcast, and he, I was like, you know, are you going to listen to it? And he was like, oh, this, you know, what, is it going to be a bunch of nerds? And I was like, you know, because <laughs> when they see that academic side, because, you know, they, they didn't go to school, they didn't go to college. When they see that, I really keep that at my workplace. I keep that mm -hmm. in school. I don't really bring that home, mm -hmm. and maybe that's something that I need to do. 
but it seems like I still go through that departure. Very early on, I was always told that I was smart, right? I was in gifted and talented. We were in a gifted and talented program. There's this notion that it's supposed to come naturally. It's supposed to be something that you do easily. And in high school, school was something that I did easily. I never had to study. I never had, it was something I did naturally. When I went to college, it was a completely different experience because like I said, I, I never studied, so I didn't have the skills to study. So um, although I never failed a course, I can remember the two C's I got in college and how heartbreaking and devastating that was. Because from someone who is supposed to be naturally smart to not get the A and not get the B was hard. It was hard. So I, I put more into my, my studies. I asked for help. I learned how to study. I finished out my last two or three semesters with a 4.0 GPA because I was not going to make the same mistakes. I was not going to assume that it was something I didn't have to work for. So I put in the work. And then when I started my master's program um, at what used to be UTPA, is now UTRGV, it was again that notion of, of having to remember how to study, having to remember how, how to read. And, and I was doing it as a single mom and staying up till four in the morning, getting assignments done, submitting papers without proofreading, and again, feeling like it's not good enough because I can't be 100% at work, 100% at school, and 100% as a mom when you have these heroes that make it look so effortless, hmm. like, like make it look like they do it so easily. Um, so this whole notion of, of messing up is something that, I, that I'm still learning and, and something that I, you just have to learn that there's gonna be moments where I'm not a great mom, but I'm a great scholar, and moments when I'm an amazing mother, but you know what, I might not make it to PhD school, because something has to give. So I'm not, I'm not gonna touch on the, on the family part of the departure, right? So I'd like, I'd like to take a different aspect of it in terms of like just departing from from this safety net of, of a place, right? That that is very routine, very structured. You get there at eight o'clock, right? You get lunch at twelve. You're out by three forty-five. Next day you do the same thing, right? Um, so so public school systems or, or just is uh, uh, high school, right? Um, and then they, they, they move into this, this, a new place, right? So they leave that place and they move into the new place. That's like, depending on how your schedule and you did your schedule, you might go in at noon, you might get out at 10, right? You might go in at eight o'clock in the morning, right? Um, <laughs> lunch is whenever you can afford to, <laughs> to eat it, right? Um, or, or, or the distractions are more, right? The, 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 so this new identity, right, that they have to, or this new place that they have to go in, right? Um, they definitely have this idea. Th this departure does happen. Um, and I think it has to happen, right? Um, if, it, if it doesn't, right? the, the idea of de departing from your old high school identity and mentality, right, to this new place that's trying to push you to, to think in a different way, right? I'm not, not, I'm not saying a better way, right? I'm, I'm saying a different way, right? Mm -hmm. um, so so if it doesn't happen then that you know like all things have right when when you don't when you don't uh, you don't i guess i don't want to say assimilate but um, 
yeah, a certain, a certain amount of simulation. Right? You have you have trouble, you have difficulty, right? Not that all the simulation is good. Not that we should assimilate to everything 100%. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that, right? But if we want to exist within this new idea, community, right, this new place, then a certain amount of assimilation is, is, is going to be helpful to you, right? So I, I think they do go through this departure. And, and when they get here, they, they should want right, to, to, to be part of this, this new identity, right? Um, if they don't, then it's then it's it's troublesome, right? Because well, this worked in high school, mm-hmm. and it might not necessarily work here. And so, what I think what I think I'm hearing um, in Campbell's hero's journey is as part of that first part, that first stage departure. There is the call to action. Not every student, I guess, if we're looking at it through the eyes of our students, through the experiences of our student, not every student is accepting of that call to action. I mean, if we're thinking about so initiating and taking part or taking part in departure. Not all of them are quick to assimilate. Not all of them are quick to leave that identity. From, from, what I, from the conversation I've, I've had with my students, from what I've seen with my students, and from what I experienced, no, it's, it's, it's hard to leave that, that identity that you had before, right? Where it's hard to, to go on that journey, right? There, mm-hmm. there's, uh, if, if, if we take Campbell's idea of the call to action, right, and we, and we pinpoint it in, I don't know, like the Odyssey, right? They didn't want to go off, of, you know, mm-hmm. on, on this journey, right? It was, it was, there was a necessity that pushed them to do this thing, right? So a, a lot of our students are like, well, you know, the reason I'm here is because this is what they told me I had to do, right? Um, my parents pushed me to do this thing, or it was always understood that I had to do this thing, right? Um, I mean, that hopefully that changes throughout the time they're here, right? But yeah. uh, some, some. I'm not going to say a lot, right, because I, I don't know the statistics on it, but some students do come in with this, like, I'm testing it out type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I mean, just because you're testing it out doesn't mean that you 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 cannot assimilate to this place, right? Um, I hate using the word assimilate. You cannot... Acclimate? Acclimate. I like that better. Yeah. Yeah. Were you all quick to accept the call to action? Were you all quick to acclimate to the university and to the... the experience your first year in college? I was so excited to go, right? Um, Like I said, I had two older brothers, so I was always somebody's little sister. Um, I look exactly like my oldest brother, and he is the absolutely most charming person you know. So everywhere I went, it was like, oh, are you Cecil's little sister? So when I decided to go to Bowling Green, Ohio, I was so excited to find a new identity, to become a new person, to see if I could make it on my own. But then when you get there and you go from being the one of the smartest people in the room all the time to struggling to compete because I didn't know how to study, I didn't know the rules of this culture. Because when you go into a university, it's a new culture. And so you start doubting yourself and then you start fighting the, well, maybe this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. And so that call to action, you become a little more reluctant because you start feeling like, you know what, maybe I, I do belong in the Valley and maybe school just isn't the right fit. I don't know if I was excited to go to college, and I, I very, I, I like I said very, I very much had that understanding of like this is this is what I'm gonna do, right? This is this is what you do, right? Mm-hmm. And not because of what um, I had seen before, because first generation, right? Um, I had two, I have two older brothers. They didn't go to college, and then my my parents, you know, they they would push this on, right? So I was like, okay, right, this is what I gotta do, right? I, I don't think I consciously chose to be reluctant to assimilate to this place. Um, I don't think I was consciously reluctant, but with my actions, I was very, you know, don't, nah, nah, you know what I mean? Like, 
I'll go on this journey, but I'm gonna I'm go my way and 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 not ask for help and not, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, and and it it was horrible. <laughs> well, my first my first year was horrible. Do you um, you work with first year students? Do you find that most are reluctant if, to accept the call to action, or or are they are they excited? Are they are they eager to kind of create this new identity for themselves? So there are. Right? So many aspects to this, right? And and and, and one <clears throat> one of them is, like I said, so so some are you know subconsciously rejecting this thing, right? For for various reasons, right? Um, and some are actively rejecting these things, but because they come in with certain ideas of this place that are uh, that don't hold up, right? Um, that don't hold up universally, right? So they come in with these ideas that professors are horrible people that. You cannot reach out to them. That you know, like that that uh, for for many reasons they reject this thing, right? But I think the the one I, that comes to mind first is is because of, of the the narrative we've given, right? The the first year college experience. The narrative that kids get, that students get coming out of high school, isn't exactly maybe a positive one. Isn't exactly a, a supportive one, and mm-hmm. and is um, do you think contrib you think contributes maybe to this reluctance on the part of college students to fully engage and to acclimate and to fully respond to the call to action? Yeah, one of the reasons. One of the reasons, okay. I was honored enough to participate in focus groups where we spoke to students and we asked about academic belonging and do they feel like they academically, like did they belong here? And we spoke to students finishing up, students just beginning and it, it seems like in their third or fourth year when they start getting into their major classes that they feel like, I found my people. Mm-hmm. I found my people. I belong here. I found faculty that, you know, I can talk to. And, and then speaking to the first year students, it was just like, oh, well, you know, we have to do these core classes. And, <laughs> you know, not all of the faculty. I mean, are, there are some really great faculty, but, you know, some that don't really embrace, you know, that. They're in classes with students in different majors. So they may not really identify with the students sitting next to them. And I would love to figure out how we can kind of reinvent it to where the core classes are designed so that students feel like they belong here. And the faculty that teaches them are faculty that want to connect and mentor with first-year students because this is the first two years decide whether students make it or don't make it. Mm-hmm. And so we should be honored and enthusiastic to teach these students. We should be honored and enthusiastic and say, you know, this is our job to make sure these students succeed. Mm-hmm. How? What am I doing to help? And um, unfortunately, I don't think our students see that all the time. What do you do? Personally, what do you do in your class to help alleviate that to help alleviate that anxiety and help them feel welcome maybe you can share some of some of what you do with with other faculty one thing i do in my class is is challenge this idea of um the networks you make right with the people who are around you right how they can help you and how building networks is a good idea right how not not building networks for your future right i mean for, for but for your immediate right now you're going to build this network because they're going to help you with with your assignments. They're going to help you, hopefully, with your any emotional problems you have, any any uh, financial problems you have, right? Whether it's just like this person was able to buy me a scantron because I couldn't afford it, right? Like these things, right? So I try to make my class a very like um, you have to interact with different people around you, right? Because you will be interacting with different people in the future, um, and you have to interact with me, right? So I I do. 
to change that narrative, I, I meet with them at the beginning of the semester, which I sit them down and I tell them, you right, are important to me. Um, I do not want to watch you fail. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to watch you succeed. Right? Do not be afraid to come by, visit me. So all of, all of my students, I know by name, I know what they're interested in, right? I know their majors, know things like that, where they're from. Um, and, and they have sat in my office at least, you know, at least once at the beginning of the semester. I, I forced them to do, to do yeah, it, right? But, yeah. but you know, so, so... So they learn to do it. They learn to maybe yes. trust other faculty and yeah. visit with other yeah. faculty. Um, and to, to break that narrative of, yeah. of, I'm only here to learn a, a subject, right? A very, a very limited way of viewing education, right? I'm only here to learn a subject, right? And when I get to that subject, then I'm, oh, then I'm having a good time. Right? Instead of I'm here to to you know not learn a subject but learn about you know social interactions, learn about about you know uh, men and women, right? About mm-hmm. the opposite sex, mm-hmm. learn about the same sex, right? Um, so a, a place of, of just growth, right? Um, the difference between that and and I think I, that's how I try to change that narrative when it gets in my classroom. Cynthia, because you work with first year students and you do a lot of programming with first year students, what do you try to do? My goal with these students is to to connect with them, to make them feel that no matter what is going on, because our students come in, they're human beings, right? They come in with lives outside of the university, and sometimes it's it's easy to forget that maybe they don't have 100 hours to dedicate to studying. Maybe they're working. Maybe they're helping support their family. Um, so my job, I think, is to always have an open door and to work with this university to see what policies and what are we doing that are creating barriers for our students mm-hmm. and how, how can I help them overcome these barriers when it comes to programming I want to have honest conversations we do the strategies for academic success so I want to invite faculty and staff members to present that are going to have honest conversations about how do you study how do you do this how do you do that but it's honest and it's authentic and it's not a powerpoint but it's engaging Mm -hmm. so that way students feel that they have a voice and students feel comfortable asking questions that they may be afraid to ask and that students are exposed to more individuals like me that are invested in their success i think it's refreshing to hear that there are faculty who are aware of this Mm -hmm. there are faculty who who, knowing they are working against this narrative, yet still try to change those experiences, and that the university as a whole, through first-year experience programming, wants students to feel welcome, wants students to feel like they belong at this place. What else could we do to, to change the narrative? We were talking before the podcast began, right, about this idea of that you want to have time to do other things and become a faculty member at the university, right? Because we, we do have a lot of extra time, right? And that's true. <laughs> we do. So dedicating some of that time to, to having conversations with, with, uh, with students outside of here, right? Um, going to accepting these invites from, from, from local schools to speak to, to their students. Um, building relationships with faculty members in, in, in our local schools, right, would, would not be a bad idea. Cynthia, do you want to add anything? I just, it, it, outside from the time, there's little things that we can do to change the narrative, and I think the language we use is powerful. So when we refer to the core as basics, when we refer to developmental mm-hmm. ed as remedial, it may be easy because you think, oh, that's what the student's going to hear, that's what they're going to get. But I guess I would challenge people who are using that language to say, so it's going to take a couple more seconds to explain what developmental is, but it reinforces that it's here to develop you, Mm -hmm. and it's here to help you. 
And we need to not take those easy shortcuts because then we're never changing the narrative and we're going to keep using that same language. Well, I think our students come in with this idea that if it's on paper and printed in a book, it's true. Can't challenge it. If you're up there telling me certain things, I can't challenge you either. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying, well, you know, we're talking about the quadratic equation, this quadratic equation, whether you like it or not. But I'm not talking about that, right? I'm talking about like challenging some of the ways that we get to the answer in certain classes, right? Challenging some of the ways that we approach our writing process, challenging some of the literature that we see, challenging some of the feedback that we get from our instructors, right? Um, so one of the worst things you can do to a student's writing is taking away that ownership element. You know what I mean? Like I tell my students, you know, give me something I haven't seen before, right? Come up with a theory that I haven't seen before. Even if that theory is going nowhere, right? At least attempt to challenge some of these things, right? Because if you come in here with this idea that I'm just gonna regurgitate the information that you gave me, that's, that's, that's cool and all, but you know, at, as, at least in my class and in my way of thinking, that doesn't build new ideas. In some cases, yeah, they, they, they can't have that negotiation with their faculty members because the faculty members don't like to be challenged, you know what I mean? Jay Saldivar doesn't like students come up to him and be like, no, sir, I don't, I don't think that theory of education, you know, applies to me because of my background. Right? Jay Saldivar is going to be like, no, well, you're stupid, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 um, yeah, I tend to agree. I, I think, but that, I think a lot of that is also has to do with the narrative that you were talking about. And so about the university being sort of almost... It's, it's, again, the next step in this logical progression of education, and it, it sort of, it, it, it represents, right, higher level thinking, and, and sort of you're, you've, you've moved up the educational ladder, and so you don't question your professors. You don't challenge them. You kind of stay quiet. You take whatever they give you, um, and I know in my class, Yesterday, actually yesterday, yesterday I had to, I was leading a, a, a presentation for Kent students on how to have a successful first year. <clears throat> and I reminded them, I said, you have to advocate for yourself. Um, and others will advocate for you, but before that, you have to advocate for yourself. And so I said, if a professor kicks you out of class, I said, if, if you miss two or three absences, or if you have two or three absences and they drop you from the class, but they didn't give you that attendance policy, it's not in their syllabus, you can challenge that. I said, it has to be stated in writing, it has to be either online on the syllabus or in the syllabus they gave you. And if it's not, you can challenge that. I said, but nobody tells you that, right? If a pro professor uh, accuses you of plagiarism, right, and you're gonna get an email that's a scary email when, when that happens, I said, you have precautions that you can take, or there are steps that you can take to protect yourself. Right? Because maybe you didn't plagiarize. Maybe you didn't knowingly plagiarize, right? But there are things that you can do, and, and I have to... And I don't think students hear that enough, that they need to advocate for themselves, just as they did it in high school, and they learn to negotiate really well in high school, right? They learn, and it's, I think that's part of the... I think what you called hacking, right? Hacking the university and, hmm. or playing the game. Students in high school, by that point, they've been through the system long enough, they learn it quickly. Right? And I think the students that are most successful are the students that learn the game quickest. I've got a niece who's a freshman in high school. Her seventh grade, you know, her first year in junior high, she didn't like the dress code. She wrote a letter to the principal uh, challenging the dress code. She has no problem going to teachers. She has no problem asking for things. I don't know where she got it from, but that's going to serve her well. I don't, I don't doubt she's going to do very well in high school. And I know when she gets to college, she'll be fine. But I think students come in here and they feel like 
it is a completely different world. I can't negotiate with my professors. I can't advocate for myself. But they can, and and they need to. Um, and then they, they need to build those networks that Thomas mm-hmm. talked about and, and networks that Cynthia talked about. Because, you know, if you have, if you have Cynthia Saldivar in your corner, Cynthia Saldivar is going to tell you where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Cynthia Saldivar is going to tell you who you need to talk to. Um, and that's power. And I don't, I don't think we tell our students that. But so, like, how do you, how do you teach that? Because, like, okay, Cynthia Saldivar is, is an introvert, right? I don't. I don't, and I think sometimes I feel like I lack the confidence even now to say, you know what, um, this is what I need. Like, it's really easy for me to advocate on someone else's behalf, mm-hmm. you know, and I can go to anyone and fight for a student, and it doesn't matter what your title is or where you are. But when it comes to, to me, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes I find myself extremely stretched thin, I still have a hard time saying no. I still have a hard time advocating for, like, what I need. So what advice would you give to that first-year student? Like, yeah, it sounds great. I wish I could advocate for myself, but maybe I don't have that confidence. So for the student, and, and Thomas can, can jump in, because uh, I'm sure you've had experiences with students like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think de- de- deliberately in my class, I think that's what, that's what helps with the advisement meetings. And you know, I, I built those in a long time ago. Because I want to have those conversations with them, and because because I understand that I because I was that student like going into college like I was incredibly shy, and I always tell my students the person you see now I was not that person through the first two years of college. I was incredibly shy, I didn't speak up in class, I had a hard time advocating for myself, but it was in that first relationship that I built with a professor that inspired me and encouraged mm-hmm. me, and so that's how I see my role. My role is okay. I'm. I'm gonna. I know a lot of our students are are are, are have anxiety and, and have apprehensions about these things, and fears. Okay, how can I help them get over that? How can I be that that bridge or that advocate for them? Um, and then connecting them. Like I deliberately try to connect them with people who I know will advocate for them. So in financial aid, I have two people. And I'm not just going to say, oh, no, you've got to go talk to financial aid. No, I tell them, go talk to these people in financial aid and tell them I sent you. Because I've done a lot of the legwork there. Go talk to Cynthia Saldivar. And I know that I don't need to tell Cynthia that, or I tell them that tell Cynthia I sent you, because I know Cynthia takes care of our students regardless. But, you know, I will tell my students, tell them I sent you. Because I've done the legwork for them. And then maybe it'll be easier for you to build that. To, to, to become an advocate and to find these other advocates for you. College is, is content, right? Knowledge, knowledge-based uh, subjects, right? College is social interaction, interactions, right? Between different cultures, different people, different ideas. College is um, understanding how to work the, the financial aid office, registrar's office, how to sign up for class, <laughs> classes. College is uh, navig- like existing in an identity where it's you and your work, right? Uh, you and your your like your, your job outside of here and, and your life outside of here and your life here. So like there's, like, I don't think there was for me at least. I don't think there was one person who let me into all of those areas, and I don't think like <clears throat> like like many faculty members, students, people within the, these these offices. And I wish I knew them by name, but I don't, right? Most of them I don't. 
right? The financial aid lady, I remember, she was Chaparita, had short hair, right? She's the one that, that, that would see me line up for that financial damn line all the time, right? Until she sat down with me and she's like, hey, do it like this. Do it like this and you'll be fine, right? right? So, so people, Donna, they're different people for different parts of the immersion process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the dream, and, and they all, they all it, it, uh, pushed me towards this dream big thing because I can't dream big and do big things here in this setting if I don't get financial aid or if I'm all sad every day of my life because I don't have friends. Anyways, that's it. Um, I agree. I, I think it's a mixture of people, but I think that there are certain people that definitely at key moments have stepped up when I needed them the most. Um so like I was recruited to go to Bowling Green State University by a man named Dave Garcia and he is from the valley he went to Ohio and um, he came down wanting to give these amazing scholarships to students right and um, throughout my undergrad when I was in this culture shock of being so far away from home of now being the only Latina in a classroom and possibly the only person of color in a classroom um, and trying to find my place, there was a key moment where I didn't think I was going to make it and I almost stayed in the valley. And if it wouldn't have been for him calling me and telling me, you know, you're getting on that plane and I'm going to help you figure it out, I would have stayed in the valley and my life would have been completely different. And I don't know if I would have been sitting here or if I would have finished school. Um, so I credit him a lot for, for helping me. And he wasn't a faculty member. He was a recruiter. It would have been really easy for him to say, you know what, I recruited you, you're here, um, I'm, my job is done. I met my number. But he was really dedicated to student success. And so I think we need to find those people somehow, those little gems on every campus that go above and beyond for students. Um, my graduate level, it was more academic and more like feeling an imposter and feeling not good enough. and. Um, I was fortunate to be mentored by um, Dr. Merla Watson, and she made me feel like I picked you out because you're talented. I picked you out because I know you have something in you nobody else has. And without that, I don't know if I would have stayed up till four in the morning doing papers, but that expectation of not letting her down. You know, one of the the benefits of this podcast and and one of my goals in in sort of... uh, thinking about it was that, uh, that it would be organic, mm-hmm. right, unscripted. I think, you know, I, I think we fully kind of had a, a develop this conversation around at least the first part of the hero's journey. And so what I'd like to do at this point um, is, b- besides bringing maybe some closure to this discussion, is to invite you back, uh, Tapas. Mm-hmm. And what, what I think we want to do is, is maybe in January revisit the hero's journey and look at the second part, right? Let's look at initiation. And then at the end of the semester, at the end of the year of of the academic year, let's look at return. What does return look like? But so strategically having these conversations. I like that. um, And so thank you for being here, Cynthia. Thank you for your time. And for those of you listening, for our faculty, we we know you already do a lot. You continue to do and, and work hard for our students. And we just encourage you to continue to do so. For our students, you know, the, the university isn't everything that it was advertised as when you were in high school. 
there are tremendous faculty and a tremendous uh, numbers of support programs and resources on campus. We encourage you to visit with your faculty and take advantage of all of the programs and resources that exist to, to support you and to help you and, and hopefully help you initiate and answer the call more uh, enthusiastically. So thank you again for listening. This concludes the first episode of the First Year Experience podcast. Thank you, and we'll, we'll check you next time.